It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is great to be with you today. And uh, during the week, you can reach us Monday through Friday on uh, Fox Business Network, FBN, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't get us at 4, please text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. It actually replays at 7 p.m., so you've got that also. And here, you can reach us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, live streaming, LarryCudlowShow.com throughout the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and that includes the Milky Way. And um, we're a little bit under the weather, but we'll try to get through all this. I want to begin with the war, and I want to begin with the apparent fact that it didn't take long for President Joe Biden to start walking away from Israel, did it? Did not take long. And so the latest news is, once again, he sends his uh, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who's an Obama-Hillary Clinton political hack, really, just just a political organizer. And they want Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israeli Defense Forces to pause, cease fire, Humanitarian aid is the reason. But you know what? It's not the reason. It's not the reason because the IDF sweeping into Gaza, cutting it off in half, surrounding it on all three sides, is really doing a terrific job, gathering terrific momentum, taking out Hamas commanders left and right, knocking out command and control systems, And you have this political backlash from the far left, from the anti-Semitic, Jew-hating, far-left part of the Democratic Party. And uh, Biden is worried about losing swing districts in Michigan. And I guess maybe Minnesota, Minneapolis, I don't know. The Palestinian, Rashida Tlaib, All these people screaming now, college campuses, unbelievable outburst of anti-Semitism, Jewish hatred. The worst thing any of us have seen in our lifetime, going back to the Holocaust, all of a sudden people are forgetting what Hamas did on October 7th, killing 1,400 people putting babies in ovens, in ovens, chopping off their heads, pulling out grandmas, taking hostages. Barbaric behavior. And now Biden wants some kind of ceasefire that would interrupt the IDF's momentum and would help Hamas who has not agreed to anything. Of course, Hamas would use any ceasefire or pause. There's no difference between the two. No difference whatsoever. 
They haven't offered up hostages. And the good news is Benjamin Netanyahu rejects the call for any temporary Israeli ceasefire. I'll read you, quote, Israel refuses a temporary ceasefire that does not include the freeing of our hostages, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told reporters after meeting with Blinken on Friday, last night. Israel does not allow the entry of fuel into the Gaza Strip and is opposed to transferring money to the Strip. Of course, it, of course that just resupplies Hamas. And by the way, this is such a phony argument because the terrorists have been accumulating fuel, food, and medical supplies for several years. And the terrorists shake down any food and fuel and medical supplies from hospitals. And everybody knows this, except Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden. Everybody knows this. And trucks have been allowed to come in from the south, from Egypt. Who's running those trucks? You can bet it's Hamas. You can bet the UN people, if there are there, are Hamas sympathizers or actually Hamas people. You can bet on it. So here's Biden, a little more than three weeks, already turning tail, trying to put the handcuffs on Israel for political reasons because of his anti-Semitic, Jew-hating left wing of the Democratic Party. It's an incredible story. And by the way, not only has Hamas not agreed to anything resembling a ceasefire, neither has Iran, the puppeteer, the paymaster. They haven't, they haven't signaled anything. What is Biden doing with Iran? A terrorist country that organized and orchestrated this barbaric invasion. What is Iran's policy? You tell me. Why hasn't Biden done anything about closing the sanctions on Iran? Donald Trump left them with virtually no money. No oil sales. Three years later, Iran selling four million barrels a day, mostly to China, our enemy. Generating as much as 80 billion in foreign exchange reserves and parceling out that money to their terrorist subdivisions, including, of course, Hamas and the Houthis in Yemen and Hezbollah and the Islamic Jihad. Of course, not one Iranian ship has been interdicted. Not one Iranian ship has been stopped from violating the sanctions. There has been no oil cutoff. There has been no banking cutoff. There has been no business and commerce cutoff. Third parties are doing business with Iran, and Iran is filling its coffers and using the money to slaughter Israelis. <laughs> and hatred of the United States. Where is Biden? Does he know what he's doing? Or just catering to a bunch of far-left anti-Semites?
Three weeks plus. It's all it took. Actually, you know, by the second week, Biden was wavering. The speech he gave to the nation, which never mentioned, which mentioned Iran twice. The speech he gave to the nation, which mentioned Ukraine as much as it mentioned Israel. I criticized that speech heavily. And in retrospect, it turns out I was right. Other conservatives were right. I take no particular pleasure in being right, but that's it. I tried to praise Biden for his support of Israel in the early going, but now look where this is. Our worst concerns have been validated. And you know, you go and look at Blinken. I don't want to spend all that much time, but he has all these conditions all if this condition is met and that condition is met and this con- he has no plan he has no clarity he basically doesn't know what he's doing he's just wallowing around in a political quagmire now he's bouncing i don't know whether he's come back or not last night and he's just at the whim of biden's political worries this is the worst kind the worst kind of politics the worst kind of war politics pausing a war which is a war for the survival of the Israeli state the survival of the Jewish homeland pausing a war for political reasons back home to carry a few districts of Palestinians that elect far-left anti-Semitic congresspeople is utter insanity. The worst kind of politics. The worst kind of politics. And the president is pushing Israel to put the fight on hold. He doesn't mention Hamas or Hezbollah or the Houthis or Iran. for domestic political reasons. Message to Biden. You're going to lose anyway, sir. You're going to lose anyway. Because it was Donald Trump, your opponent, whom you can't put in jail, no matter how hard you try. Trump will run from jail anyway, but he won't be in jail. All this legal stuff. You're corrupt. New scandals are emerging pay-for-play, influence peddling, checks coming from family members. A Speaker of the House who's a very clever chap. Folks, we will be playing parts of an interview that I had with the new Republican House Speaker, Mike Johnson, a very clever, smart, likable chap who's done some very clever things. On the floor of the House, Thursday evening, just after I interviewed him, he passed $14 billion appropriation, supplemental appropriation for Israel. He did not include all the other junk that Biden and Chuck Schumer requested. He did not include aid for Ukraine. He did not include aid for Taiwan. And he did not include aid for the southern border. 
which is wide open. Pause a moment on the southern border. We know from the testimony this past week from this guy, Alejandra Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, who acknowledged that terrorists are coming across the open southern border, that Chinese nationals are coming across the open southern border. He testified that he has no idea where the gotaways went. And of course, people keep streaming across that they do know about, but then they disappear into the interior of our country. So, Speaker Johnson is saying, basically, we'll get the Israel money through, and then let us bargain, let's bargain, regarding the Ukraine and the southern border. Now, this is very smart politics, because Johnson will want a complete policy change on the southern border, finish the wall, end catch and release, end abuse of parole authority, reform the broken asylum system, restart Remain in Mexico. That's the kind of policy changes that are necessary, in return for which money could be appropriated to Ukraine, provided hopefully that there's some mission statement, some exit strategy for the Ukraine money. So this is very clever. Israel first, and then let's look at the link between Ukraine and the southern border. Biden doesn't want this. Schumer doesn't want this. Some Republicans don't. Mitch McConnell doesn't want it. That's too bad. But we'll see how it plays out. We have at the half hour Senator Ron Johnson, who I believe will be agreeing with Speaker Mike Johnson. And we'll talk about that with the great Wisconsin Senator and also some of the, uh, some of the um, new scandals surrounding Joe Biden. But the worst part of our story this morning is Biden trying to put the handcuffs on Israel. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. Biden trying to protect his left-wing anti-Semitic precincts who are up in arms. Anti-Semitic precincts who are up in arms. And Biden doesn't have the backbone to say no to them so we can maintain and support Israel's right to exist, its very existence as the Jewish homeland. What is wrong with Joe Biden? Where is the decency or the moral clarity that is so lacking in this White House? It is time for him to go and put a strong man like Donald Trump in his place. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. A little bit under the weather today, but uh, we'll get through it. 
Uh, besides the Israeli war, which is really the dominant issue of our day, a couple of other things we'll talk about. I mentioned the scandals surrounding Biden. I had uh, House uh, Chairman Jamie Comer of the Oversight Committee was on the uh, Fox Business TV show talking about the new scandals. Checks, $200,000 check, $40,000 check. $40,000 check from 400000 money laundered through numerous accounts. That's 10%. Remember the big guy, Tony, Tony Bobolinsky said 10% for the big guy. Well, there it is. And Comer's got it in spades. And the lefties in the House are howling. And Hunter Biden's writing op-ed pieces blaming everything on his addiction. Sorry. Influence peddling. Scandals. Pay for play with foreign nationals. In this case, it was China foreign national, our dear friend in China, right? So we'll talk about that. We've got Senator Ron Johnson coming on. He's one of the key people involved in trying to investigate these scandals in the Senate, although Chuck Schumer has stopped everything in the Senate to the best of his ability. More political corruption, really. Mr. Schumer's a corrupt man. He's a corrupt man for doing these things. Mr. Schumer, by the way, who uh, once upon a time was a leading advocate of the Jewish people. He is a Jewish senator. He has served honorably for many, many years. I don't know how long he's been in office, 40 years. But he is behaving as badly as anything I've ever seen, as anything I have ever seen. And he is letting down, among other things, all the people of New York, but particularly the Jewish citizens of New York. I'm Kudlow. we take a break. The great Senator Ron Johnson is coming up in just a few moments. Please hang around, folks. We will be right back. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's not waste any time. We're going to bring in uh, Senator Ron Johnson, a very dear friend. Senator Johnson, thank you for doing this this morning. We appreciate it. Good morning, Larry. Uh, Hope you're doing well. A uh, little under the weather. Got a cold, but you know what? <laughs> we'll get through it. <laughs> not a problem. I'd like to talk about the war, the Israel war. I'd like to talk with you about the fact that it didn't take Joe Biden long to start calling for a ceasefire or pause, putting the handcuffs on Israel. Netanyahu wisely has said no. They keep sending uh, Tony Blinken around. I don't even know what Blinken wants. He's got like 10 conditions and no one's meeting them. Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran. How is this possible? We were, but Biden starts out supporting Israel and talking about, you know, the existential efforts to keep their existence. And in just a couple of weeks, Senator Johnson, he's already jumping ship because the left wing, the anti-Semitic left wing of the Democratic Party is closing in on him. Can you talk to that, sir? Well, when the form of politics you play is identity politics and you assemble a coalition of all these groups, and you push division, and you push hate. Every now and again, uh, members of your coalition uh, hate each other, and that's what you're finding out. Is it? So you're you're seeing that the uh, they're starting to cater and pander to the the Arab uh, part of their coalition at the expense of the, the Jewish and, and pro-Israeli part of the coalition, and it's not working out too well for them. 
But, I, you know, from my standpoint, this is pretty straightforward what we need to do. I mean, the 1,400 Israelis that were slaughtered, if, if you would just make that a comparison to the U.S. as a percentage of the population, that would be like 50,000 Americans brutally slaughtered. I mean, to the point where you really can't even describe it on the radio, okay? Uh, you can imagine what the American public would be demanding of our military, of our, of our government, and that's exactly what the, the Israeli people are going to be demanding of the Israeli government and their defense forces. They need to destroy Hamas. They can't ever allow this to happen again. And our role as Israel's friend is to support Israel, not undermine its efforts, not ask it to you know, pause in their attack to put more Israeli soldiers at risk uh, in accomplishing what they have to accomplish. Um, with no input from Hamas, I mean, the ceasefire or pause, there's no difference. It's a semantic difference. Um, I don't see any conditions for Hamas. I don't see any conditions for Hezbollah. I don't see any conditions for Iran. And by the way, the Iranian paymaster continues to bloat its uh, finances, sir, because uh, they refuse, they, the Bidens, refuse to enforce the Trump sanctions. I mean, it's one of the most, it's one of the worst aspects of this is the fact that the Bidens will not deal with Iran, will not talk about Iran, will not talk about how they broke the sanctions on Iran, and how Iran is the paymaster and, of course, the master strategist. How do you reckon that, Senator Johnson? Well, first of all, that is the root cause of the current situation here. And it started back with the Obama administration as they uh, coddled uh, the Iranian regime, uh, funneled tens, more than a hundred billions of dollars into the largest state-sponsored terror, you know, under the totally mistaken belief that you could get Iran to change their behavior, that we could get at, get Iran to abandon their nuclear ambitions. You never, that was never going to happen. And then, of course, the Biden administration picked up where the Obama administration left off, uh, lifted sanctions, allowed tens of billions more money to flow into the, again, largest state sponsor of terror. Uh, they are the paymasters for Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen. But again, this, this is the result of hor- horribly stupid policies on the part of the, the Obama administration and the Biden administration and all their advisors who are pretty much the same group of people. You know this guy, uh, Anthony Blinken? Yeah, I know he lied to my uh, investigators when we asked him a pretty simple question. Did you ever email Hunter Biden? He could have been honest. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, he's the son of the vice president. I, I, I know him. I email him. No, he lied to us because he's trying to cover up his, you know, the wrongdoing of the Biden family. So, no, I don't trust him any further. I can throw him. Wasn't he the guy uh, who prompted the letter from the 51 phony intelligence people to say the laptop was a Russian disinformation. Didn't Blinken start that? You are correct there. And, of course, then he had the uh, uh, complicity and the aid of uh, members of the intelligence agencies that uh, went along with it uh, and really turned the tide of the election. I, I think had it not been for that that uh, lie, that big lie, I think Trump would have got a second term. I don't believe we would have uh, disastrously withdrawn from Afghanistan the way we did. I don't think we would have emboldened Putin and Xi and the Ayatollahs. Uh, we wouldn't be engaged in war on fossil fuel. We would have a closed border. We would have already uh, had a functioning legal immigration system. Uh, you know, Larry, I've, I've said this repeatedly. If you were asked to devise a strategy to destroy this country, you'd be really hard-pressed to come up with a better game plan than what uh, Biden and his 
his administration is implementing the, the open borders, the, again, the, the dangerous and disastrous uh, surrender in Afghanistan, the 40 year high inflation, the war on fossil fuels. I mean, the, the, this division, the hate that they are sowing through their identity politics, uh, it's, it's, it's destroying this country. It's weakening us. And when America is weak, the world's a far more dangerous place. That's the, the situation we're in right now. What do you think of, uh, you know, Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, Jewish senator, longtime service, usually on the side of Israel. Now he's shilling for Biden's ceasefire and um, opposing. I want to talk about uh, Speaker Mike Johnson's Israel strategy, but how can a guy like Schumer go along with the left-wing anti-Semitic uh, part of the D- Democratic Party. How? Can, why isn't he speaking up? I mean, I, you know, you and I disagree with his politics through and through. He's a man of the left. We are conservatives on the right. But Schumer has represented the Jewish people in New York State and around the country. He's always been a great friend of Israel. And now he's turning away from that. How do you figure that? Well, like most of not all Democrats, he's an enormous, he's a huge hypocrite. Uh, all they really are concerned about all they really crave is power and they will do anything to obtain power and maintain power but that's the, the definition of the democrat party I mean, they're from the left larry i don't know anything that the leftist ideology has ever built i mean radical leftism just destroys things marxism communism it just destroys economies destroys nations destroys freedom it doesn't build anything other than a really effective propaganda machine and they, they do that time and time throughout history, and unfortunately, propaganda works. Mm. That, that, and that's all that props up the Democrat Party is just falsehoods, lies, and propaganda. What do you think of uh, our new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson? Big supporter. I, I met with him, uh, uh, escorted him over to our Senate uh, steering committee lunch. Uh, I'm, I'm very impressed with him. He, first of all, he's just such a good person. You can just mm. tell he's a good person. He's got core beliefs. Uh, he, he, he's not bombastic at all. He just tells you exactly what he believes. And I mm-hmm. think you can rely on that he's going to adhere to those principles. And I, I think what he's doing with Israel is absolutely correct. He's just recognizing the reality of the situation. He's not going to be able to pass the supplemental that Schumer and McConnell want to push and shove down his throats. He wants to, he wants to support Israel. And he wants to do it in a fiscally responsible way, and he's chosen the exact pay for it. Provide $14.5 billion to Israel, and let's reduce by a little bit the, the amount that the, the Biden administration uh, got passed to support more IRS harassment of Americans. I mean, it's a perfect pay for it. It's not going to put a dent in the IRS's ability to harass Americans, <laughs> uh, it, but it might reduce it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so the idea of a pay for, which is a very good idea, has been lost in recent years. I mean, Newt Gingrich has been talking about this a lot. Uh, pay-fors should come back as a budget uh, weapon, and uh, Speaker Johnson wants to do that. I mean, even apart from the huge, huge issues of preserving Israel's freedom and so forth, this is a very important budget issue, and you can see the rebellion, just $14 billion, one lousy pay-for, and everyone's howling about that. Well, that's, that's the Union Party in Washington, D.C., which has uh, plundered and mortgaged our children's future, land us uh, more than $33.5 trillion in debt with no one in sight. You know, the other thing I think that's brilliant about this, again, it's just it's bowing to reality. 
uh, he can't pass the overall supplemental. And he also realizes the, the very legitimate and effective uh, point that's been made that the Biden administration and members of the Democratic care far more about Ukraine's border security than our own. And so there will be a very legitimate and concerted effort to make sure that any money going to Ukraine, and I think we all want to support the Ukrainians, we all despise Putin, but any money that's going to go into Ukraine is going to be tied to true border security. And from my standpoint, that's got to be tied to metrics and benchmarks. It's very easy to do. You know, Trump, pretty well, from the height of the, the border crisis that he experienced because of bad Obama policies, within 12 months, he brought it down from the top of his crisis down to only 17,500 people coming to this country a month. Now, that's still 17,500 too many, but it was a tremendous improvement over what he was dealing with. And it compares to over 270,000 on the southwest border last month under Biden. 17,000 versus 270,000. Uh, we have to secure our border. Yeah, you know, I interviewed Speaker Johnson uh, Thursday. Um, he's such an amiable, likable guy. And as you say, he has very good core principles. And he basically said, look, he basically said what you just said. Uh, money for Ukraine should be, but it should be conditional on border security policy changes. Finish the wall, end catch and release, end the abuse of parole authority, reform the broken asylum system, and restart remain in Mexico. So those five points, I mean, that's a very sensible approach. My question is, will it have any legs in the Senate? Can you stir the pot, you and your group of, you know, strong conservatives? Get me, even Mitch McConnell has said we, we do need changes on the border. Can, can this get done? Well, you know, I do know the group that is working on border security measures. I've, I've seen the proposal. It's a rock-solid proposal. If you had a president who wanted to secure the border and was willing to faithfully execute the laws we passed, unfortunately, we don't have a president like that right now, which means... Yeah, we need to change that law, and what they're proposing is really rock solid. But unless we attach to it metrics and benchmarks that the administration must achieve, mm. actually bring down the number of people that are trying to get in this country illegally, uh, it'll be off or not. And quite honestly, then Republicans will be blamed for passing something that didn't work either. So, no, th- there is a concerted effort. Uh, I, think, I think we will have enough uh, Republicans to deny cloture on any measure that comes short of actually fixing the problem with metrics to ensure that this administration actually executes the law that we passed. So you think you got a group that could deny cloture until until you get these conditions? I sure hope so, and that's certainly what I've been working on even this morning to make sure that we do. Who's your, who are your major uh, cohorts, Senator Johnson? Well, you know, my, my two main allies are Rick Scott and Mike Lee. I mean, it's yep. a, uh, this core group that works with House Conservatives we're the ones that convince everybody we have to get by the debt ceiling, get something for it. So it was the House Freedom Caucus that literally are responsible for getting us by the debt ceiling. Mm. And I think uh, Speaker Johnson recognizes that. And I was very pleased to hear he wants to broaden cooperation and collaboration, not only within the House, but also with the Senate, which is why he came to Senate Steering Lunch uh, when he was a pretty busy guy, but uh, you know, really did a great job you know, getting the senators to understand the challenges he faces asking for the support, and, you know, from my standpoint, right. I certainly hope a no-reflective senator undermines his efforts. 
Well, that's good stuff. Um, you know, it's funny on that point, uh, we'll take a quick break, but he came on my show for uh, 10, 12, 15 minutes, and we're going to play a lot of that interview uh, at the next hour. He's a busy guy, but he took time out for the show, and I was most grateful for that. And um, I was so impressed with him, as were our viewers. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, the most sensible guy, maybe one of the five most sensible guys in the Senate. Senator, hang on, uh, take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk about some of the new checks. Uh, 40,000, let's see, goes 10,000. No, 400,000 becomes 40,000. That's 10% that went to the big guy. And Jamie Comer has all the checks to prove it. And Senator Johnson, we'll talk about that on the other side. Folks, I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking to the great Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson, let's talk about... um, Loans, two hundred thousand dollar checks going to uh, to uh, Joe Biden from Jim Biden, his brother. Another forty thousand dollar check. I think it actually went from Sarah Biden, Jim Biden's wife, to Comer. Uh, at least one of them is traceable to the uh, Chinese communist uh, investor, oil company investor. Uh, the other one, they're quibbling about whether it was a loan or not. Uh, nobody has the loan documents about the terms of the loan. So what do you make of this uh, latest stuff that came out last week? Well, I think uh, Chairman Comer is doing a great job at further exposing the corruption of the Biden crime family. You know, Senator Grass and I, we pretty well laid out all the inflows coming into this labyrinth of companies that Hunter set, set up. Those obviously, obviously set up uh, to launder money. And now by obtaining these bank records, we're seeing exactly how that, that money is being laundered. You're right. I mean, $40,000 just happens to be 10% of $400,000 payment for the big guy. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Bidens are going to resist to turning over all the bank records. But when Chairman Coleman gets them, I think it's going to be devastating for, for Joe Biden. You know, but you know, I also have to point out uh, you know, my partner in the Senate, Senator Grassley, has had a whistleblower come to his office that is providing excellent information and, quite honestly, depressing information. The fact that the FBI had 40 confidential human sources mm. that had the derogatory information on the Bidens, and the FBI basically set up this foreign influence task force whose job is primarily to find out where, where that derogatory information is, catch and kill it, my staff calls it. I mean, basically, they would, they would find out where it was, then they'd swoop in and say, oh, that's Russian disinformation which is exactly what the task force did in their unsolicited briefing to Senator Grassley and I to dissuade us from investigating the Hunter, Hunter Biden corruption, interfering in our elections or interfering in our uh, uh, investigation. And then they leaked it, which interfered in my election. No, so, again, it's not, not only do we have the, the danger to national security of a compromised president because of the Biden corruption, but now we see the corruption in federal law enforcement. Uh, you, you mentioned the 51 uh, intelligence officials that uh, lied to the American public that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian information operation. Again, this is this is corruption at the highest levels. That's the danger to our democracy. Senator Johnson, which um, what task force was that? An FBI task force? Or w- uh, which task force? Yeah, this, it was called the Foreign Influence Task Force. Uh, that wow. You had an individual, Brian Auten, in August of 2020, whistleblower said he had a scheme to, again, identify and downplay any derogatory information. Again, we're, we're trying to get the pieces of the puzzle that put together as well. But 
Yeah, Larry, you, you, you can't get information out of the federal, out of uh, the FBI. I mean, they are the law, and they use their position as being the law to hold themselves above the law, mm, to hold themselves, yes. you know, to, to insulate themselves from congressional oversight and public scrutiny. It's, it's a very serious problem. Well, um, I had Senator Grassley on the show last week. You know, we were talking about, I guess, the letter he wrote. He mentioned you several times as his colleague on this um, 40 senior FBI informants, I mean, I reckon these are paid informants, uh, have said that there were criminal acts with respect to the Bidens uh, from foreign uh, money, and uh, they signed these 1023 FBI reports, uh, which is to say they're under oath when they do it, uh, but now uh, you can't get your hands on these reports, and the FBI is covering them up. Now, what do you make of that? Because that that's another one of these FBI's above the law, but they actually wrote or signed 1023 reports as senior informants. So I would guess if you made that public, that would be quite a lot of evidence one way or another. Absolutely, and then again, I think... What it appears was happening is this foreign influence task force would find out, you know, get information from different offices from these confidential human sources and then swoop on in. And whoever the FBI agents that were developing these sources is, oh, don't worry about that. It's Russian disinformation. That, that's what they were telling us in a secure briefing. I, I knew it was, it was a, a setup. Hmm. I asked them at that point in time, you know, okay, what information do you have? Well, we can't share that with you. So who set up this briefing? Hmm. Three years later, Larry, we don't know who directed that unsolicited briefing. We do have uh, now Chairman Jordan investigating who set that thing up because that right. briefing, Senator Grassley and I, was corrupt as well. Huh. Senator Ron Johnson, as always, sir, we really appreciate it. God bless what you're doing in the U.S. Senate. Thanks for coming back on the show, folks. We'll take a quick break. Other side of the break, we have Fox's Brian Kilmeade. And then we're going to play the uh, Mike Johnson, Speaker Mike Johnson interview. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm here with my pal, Brian Kilmeade, who's the host of uh, Fox News One Nation the co-host of FNC's famous Fox and Friends. He's also the radio host of the Daily Brian Kilmeade Show. And he's got a new book out, Love Selling Books, and I love Brian's books. It's called Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Radical Equity. And I'm sure you can get it one, one push on Amazon, make it real easy or bookstores, any place, or any way you can get it. Brian, welcome back. Thank you for doing this. Um, before we get to Teddy Roosevelt and Booker Washington, I was watching you last night doing a great job on uh, Jesse Waters' show hosting. And, you know, I <laughs> it took Joe Biden, what, two weeks? And now he's jumping ship, talking about pauses and ceasefire sending his, uh, you know, political crony, Anthony Blinken, over to try to talk uh, uh, Netanyahu into it. Netanyahu, smart guy, says no way. I mean, how do you read this? 
<clears throat> this is the anti-Semitic left wing of the Democratic Party pulling Joe Biden to the left. Is that what's going on here? I think there's panic. I think there's panic. There's panic, number one. It's, it, it's going to be a long war. Mm. Number two is he looked around and said, wait a second, in Washington, D.C. today, everybody 18 to 22, as scary as that sounds, is going to be marching for, drum roll, please, the Palestinians. Mm. Uh, guess what? He's got this, the, the crazy squad who refused to uh, rein in or condemn when they did things wacky. He said, well, isn't it great to have their spirit? I really like you guys. They totally turned on him. They are threatening him. Can you believe this? Can you imagine this? Guys were threatening Trump, Republicans. You, you know, you better do what I say or else I'm going to rally Republicans against you. Uh, this is uh, so instead of just saying, hey, I'm 80 years old. I've been through it all. I, I know what it's like to do the right thing. And sometimes it's hard. Instead, he begins to panic. His base begins to wobble and get over there, uh, uh, Anthony Blinken, and go tell him to calm things down. Because he knows nothing about war. He has no instincts on winning. He doesn't never like Netanyahu, ever. We all know that. He's already been disrespected by the Arab world. So he goes, oh, let me just go to the other side. Or, worse yet, Larry, let's go halfway. Yeah. I still support you, but just can you do me a favor and just pause for a while? Where's... Well, we already know that Hamas is trying to sneak out the Rafa gate. That's what the holdup is on the humanitarian exit. You know, Hamas you... is sneaking their people through. You had that guy last night. Uh, he was very good. The Washington Post uh, columnist, Rogan. Josh Rogan. Josh Rogan, who said, you know, what about the, Iran? Iran's the paymaster. The paymaster. I love that. And it's exactly right. H- how's Iran going to uh, cease fire? What do you think about a, a humanitarian pause from Iran? I don't see it, Brian. Larry, you guys <laughs> had him in a box. You, the, you, you need the financial guys. You need the trade experts. And then you need the military experts. All together, you said, we can't trust these guys. I hate this Iranian deal. I gave it a shot. I analyzed it. I, I ran against it, and you guys ripped it up. You had maximum pressure. You had that country coming apart from the inside because they hate their own regime. You had these terror groups starve for money, and the president, this president comes in and says, I'm going to do the exact opposite. Uh, I'm going to get back in that deal. I'm going to make the Houthi rebels no longer on the terror watch list. I'm going to tell Saudi Arabia, I'm not selling you rockets anymore. I'm going to make you the pariah nation. And they said, really? Okay, you're on your own in this region, and you just made your bed with a bunch of criminals. Yeah. You're doing a great job on this, Brian. Honestly, you're doing a great job. Talk to us. Teddy Roosevelt, Booker T. Washington, and the path to racial equity. Um, Equality. Oh, okay. It says equity here, but I thought, yeah, it should be equality. I haven't read the book yet because I've been wall-to-wall war. I was out yesterday because my, I don't know, terrible cold, but whatever. Brian, how does this story end? Because, you know, Republicans, obviously Lincoln, then Ulysses S. Grant, uh, you know, they really tried to enforce Reconstruction and equality. And then the story kind of backtracks, as you mentioned that, the Rutherford B. Hayes election, uh, which was a step backwards. And then you get to uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington, but really, Brian, the Democratic Party was ra- racist, I mean, until the 1960s, even through the 60s. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not telling you uh, for generations from South Carolina, I'm not going to say, all oh, your grandparents are racist. I'm not going to say that. Hmm. I'm saying you were born in a period in which there was a thought in this country and around the world that uh, whites were smarter than blacks. Uh, hmm. And, that you know, they got to help out. I have compassion, but they're not equal. Guys like Benjamin Franklin, maybe the smartest man to walk the earth. 
That's what he thought until he looked around and saw that education was the key. And along the way, uh, the American story is people do uh, come out of nowhere to lead us through dark times. Mm. And when I'm reading Up From Slavery, this guy was born a slave. And I'm reading his autobiography even before Frederick Douglass. And I decided to do Douglass and Lincoln first. And Teddy Roosevelt's all over it. Mm. And I'm like, what is it about this rich guy, rich family, that he saw so, uh, so much eye to eye and was able to work with Booker T. Washington in the North? Well, it turns out that Teddy Roosevelt's mom was was uh, The brothers fought for the Confederacy. He had a horrible upbringing. He related to the struggles of, of like, not only even though money wasn't a problem, his health was. They thought Teddy Roosevelt was going to die. The rest of his life, he just said, I, how do I change America? And he said, I read up from slavery. He's vice president. He goes, who is this guy, Booker T. Washington? He is changing generations of African-Americans, changing the perceptions that whites have on blacks. And if I want the black vote and I want to find out what's going on in the South, I can't text him. I can't send up a satellite. I can't do a YouTube video. But you know what I could do? I could call him. And he said, if I become president, we could work together. He becomes president. And this guy ends up being an advisor, uh, right. recommending judges and postmasters and he also saw uh, in Booker T. Washington a guy that told the whole generation that you not only learn to books, you're going to learn a skill, a trade. Right. That's why right. I thought of Mike Rowe right away. Uh-huh. Mike Rowe says, listen, you've got to be hireable. Uh-huh. And he says, you cannot graduate from Tuskegee without uh-huh. being a blacksmith, an agriculture guy, a construction, an architect. You had to learn a trade. Uh-huh. And that, that just revolutionized the generation of Americans at a time in which Jim Crow and segregation was, was, the, uh-huh. was the rule. Right. And then this guy came within it and changed us around. It's it, We're not ducking our past. We're talking about two men who helped us through our past to get us where we are today. There you go. That's great. The great Brian Kilmeade, great books, by the way. Teddy and Booker T had two American icons, blazed the path for racial equality. The book is out. Please go ahead and buy it. Thank you, Brian. We appreciate it very much, as always. Folks, we'll take a quick break, and on the other side, my uh, interview with Speaker Mike Johnson. You won't want to miss this. There's a lot in it. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. New House Speaker, Mr. Mike Johnson from the great state of Louisiana. Mr. Speaker, first of all, you're very gracious to, go, to come on. I know it's a busy day. We appreciate it very much. Um, sir, I want to begin, if you will. There's a back and forth in the White House press room just a little while ago, uh, for the life of me, I do not understand the difference between a ceasefire and a pause, okay? But I want you to just hear this back and forth and then maybe give us a comment. As you push the Israelis for humanitarian pauses, are they just supposed to sit back and let Hamas attack them and attack them and attack them and not fight back? We have been crystal clear that Israel has the right to defend themselves. I mean, my so goodness. pause means they can still shoot back. My goodness, Peter, we're giving them security assistance almost every day. But do we advocate pauses by both sides here, temporary, localized, to be able to get Americans out, to be able to get aid in? You betcha we do. That doesn't mean that we're calling for a general ceasefire. There's a, hey, hang on a second. There's a difference. 
Yeah, there's a difference. And then yesterday, Mr. Biden said in answer to a question, I think uh, the president was in Minneapolis, quote, I think we need a pause. A pause means giving time to get the prisoners out. We all want the prisoners out. We all want the hostages out. But, Mr. Speaker, what is the what Do you see a difference between a pause and a ceasefire? And what do you think about this whole debate? I have to tell you, I agree with Peter Ducey. I would be asking the same questions. I'm not sure what the difference is. Let's make clear that there was a ceasefire, and it was before October 7th. And mm. right now, and since that time, Hamas has been relentlessly, barbarically, uh, just just having its way through there. And and uh, it what we've seen and what we've heard, the, the firsthand accounts of the atrocities there, just defy the imagination. We have to stand with Israel. There is no equivocation here at all. When I spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu on the phone on Saturday night, and he said this is good versus evil, light versus darkness. I agree with him wholeheartedly, and we're going to stand fully with our, with our ally and our friend Israel. Um, you're going to take up this afternoon, I guess, you're going to have a vote on the Israeli funding bill. Uh, can you tell us about that? It does not look like the Senate majority leader or the Senate minority leader uh, agrees with you at the moment. I have no idea how this is going to play out. Could you just tell us how you see it, please? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. As a general premise, we have to change the way business is done in Washington, and that is we have to keep an eye always on our own financial stability. We, we want to help Israel. We are going to help Israel. But when I uh, brought forward the supplemental emergency relief uh, package, I wanted to have a pay for. And that is that we decided that the, the large fund that's about $67 billion that's sitting aside to beef up the IRS, I thought in, in the competing priorities, uh, helping Israel in this dire moment is more important than hiring more IRS agents. And so that's how we're going to do it. This is a very important principle that you talk about all the time, Larry, is, is uh, fiscal responsibility. And we've gotten away from that and we have to get back to it. With $33.6 trillion in federal debt, you know, the Treasury Department this this week said we're going to have to borrow over one point five trillion dollars additionally just to keep the government in operation for the next two quarters. Mm -hmm. This is an unsustainable track. So it, these are not mutually exclusive pursuits. We can help Israel and ensure that our own house is in order. And that work begins today. Well, you know, Newt Gingrich uh, talked about this, wrote a column on it. It's very important that you reestablish pay fors or checkoffs. Um, and that's what you've done. But the bigger question is going to be, Mr. Speaker, as you well know, um, I guess a difference of opinion between the Republican House uh, and the um, Democratic Senate. Is there a way to predict this? I mean, I, I, a lot of people would like to see Ukraine broken out. We need a good national conversation on Ukraine. Certainly uh, throwing a little more money at the border in order to expedite more catch and release, I mean, we need a lot more conversation about that because it's crazy. But it just doesn't seem like this stuff's going to get resolved. And then there's this emergency spending, 55, 56 billion, which is crazy. I mean, how does this play out, sir, in the next uh, few days? Well, you're going to see, um, you know, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats in the Senate want to do what President Biden wants to do, and that is lump all of those categories and, and items that you just listed all together in one giant spending package. That is not what the American people desire. It's not what they deserve. They, they deserve uh, a more sober look at each of these issues. So we're going to handle the Ukraine issue and the border issue probably together on in the House side. We're going to do these separately so we can have thoughtful debate and discussion. We're, we're in the consensus building business here. Mm. We don't have a full consensus yet. 
uh, on Ukraine. We do have a, a growing bipartisan concern about the border, and I think we're going to get actual, real policy changes there, and that's going to serve all the American people. So we're working hard on each, each of those issues, and we can do it simultaneously. I mean, everybody's, I mean, even uh, Mayorkas of DHS virtually agreed that potential terrorists are crossing the border. Chinese yep. nationalists are crossing the border, uh, as well as all the illegals in the catch and release. I mean, I would think we need a full national conversation about that and its whole change in policy. Yeah, and, and of course, Larry, all of that was completely foreseeable. When they opened up the border under Mayorkas' direction and President Biden himself, they allowed for this this serious situation that we have. And now the FBI has, has said, Director Ray said just a few days ago, that they, they suspect there might even be terrorist cells. Uh, they're setting up and planning only, only God knows uh, against American citizens. So we're to be on alert. Well, yeah, of course, when you keep the border open and you allow dangerous people to come in, you open yourselves up for that kind of chaos. We've been, we've been working with everything we have for the last nearly three years to get that border closed and secured, and they've ignored us until now. We're going to force the issue, and I think the American people want us to do that. When you spoke to President Biden after your victory as Speaker, did, first of all, how was that, just generally? And um, did these issues come up? Did he, you know, he sort of comments on stuff, and you might have had an opinion or two. What was that conversation like? Uh, we had a cordial kind of a meet-and-greet conversation. The schedule got jostled a bit, and we actually wound up having 15 or almost 20 minutes uh, together. Uh, but we kept it at the surface level. I mean, I'd met him once before, and uh, it was uh, really a, an introductory kind of thing. It, you know, it was a pleasant conversation. He knows that we're on very different planets with regard to policy and our positions and all of that. And we, we uh, kind of mutually agreed, I think, that we'd have a stalemate for purposes of that conversation. I did meet later that day. This was on Thursday of last week with Jake Sullivan and uh, and the OMB director, Shalanda, and, and a number of the White House officials. And we had very uh, direct conversations about where the House is, where the House Republican majority is on, for example, dividing the Israel and Ukraine issue. And uh, I just told them we're resolved and we're going to do it that way. And everybody there needs to kind of wrap their mind around that because that's reality. You know, about 15 seconds after you got off the phone with President Biden, his presidential campaign started attacking you. Oh, yeah. Well, look, that's that's the game here. I met with him in person at the at the White House, um, and you know it was cordial, and uh, and he complimented me on the, uh, you know, on, on having won the the position and all of that, and he shared some old stories. You know, he said, you know, I've been around here a while. Yes, sir, we we all know. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I respect the office, and I think that's an important principle around here. We can't get away from that. But obviously, I have great concern with how he's leading the country, and I, I, uh, I'd i be hard-pressed to tell you one policy issue that I think they've handled well. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Well, you should probably take it as a compliment that they're coming after you. You know, got them all. They're all overheated about your speakership. Anyway, I had one other thing I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, Bidens have been uh, have been appeasing Iran I talk about it virtually every night. Wall Street Journal editorial page talks about it. Is there some way, Mike, something you can do as House Speaker uh, to restore the sanctions on economic and energy activity? Because, as you know, in the last three years, essentially Iran, which was broke when Donald Trump left office, has now refunded itself because of uh, easy-going sanctions. 
And, you know, there's no interdiction. There's no impoundment. I mean, I call it stop a ship, send a message. They got $80 billion in energy and foreign exchange reserves, and they're financing Hamas and all the rest of the terrorism. Is there something that you, Speaker, and the House can do to restore the tough Trump sanctions? Listen, on this, like so many other issues, I'm from the Kudlow School, okay? I agree with you 100%. We're having some thoughtful dialogue and discussion about what we can do to draw that line. Iran is the largest state sponsor of terror around the world. They, they, they do not have the U.S.'s interest, best interest at heart. Um, they're, they're the ones that are uh, sparking all of the, uh, the violence and the unrest in, in the Middle East throughout the region. And, of course, Hamas and Hezbollah are proxies for them. So why in the world would we do anything to assist them in any way? I, it just defies uh, common sense and logic. We're going to push back as vigorously as we can. The House Republican Conference will do that. We only have a slim majority in one chamber, of course, of the, of the legislative branch, but we're going to use that as best we can as a bully pulpit and with our policy production to try to push back. Well, I wondered. I mean, you might get bipartisan support in some quarters from the other side of the aisle. The other area of potential bipartisan support, Mr. Speaker, is on this incredible spread of anti-Semitism. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Larry Kudlow, so we're going to turn away from the Israeli war and take a look at the economy. We had a soft employment report, um, downward revisions, and some very soft ISMs on manufacturing and services. So let's turn to Breitbart's John Carney. Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. So, John, you're saying, I read, I just read your piece quickly, excuse me, fighting a bad cold here. Um, It looks like you, you went soft on the softness in the employment report. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did a little. Tell us your your take on this. I'm going to give you a second chance. (laughs) Sure. That, no, that's that's right. I think that the employment report was, as you pointed out, it was a lot softer than people expected. And I think very significantly, we got downward revisions for the last two months. One thing I'll caution about is for August, for instance, we got a downward revision from August after an upward revision. Right. So initially, the, the August number was not so good. And then it was really good. And now it's not so good again. So these numbers bounce around a lot. So that's why when I look at the 150 number for uh, uh, for October, I say, well, okay, look, we, we need to be a little bit cautious about what that really is telling us about the economy because it could be revised up or down a lot. One of the well, it's 101,000 revisions. So right, exactly. 150 minus 101 is 50,000. It's not very good. No, it's not very good. And uh, eight, of the, I- eight of the last nine months were revised down. I'm just saying... I, I appreciate the. I mean, these numbers do bounce around month to month, but you've got a downward trend eight of the last nine months. That's usually uh, a bad, a bad, you know, soft economic signal. And I'm yeah, wondering. And, and unemployment is up, by the yes. way, to three point nine percent. So we yes. have gained a, you know, that is a pretty steep climb. I mean, that's a low number if you look at the big picture through history, but we've gone up a lot from where we were just a little while ago. I'm looking at, I'm thinking the fourth quarter is going to only be about 1%, John. 
So I would the, the the only reason I would be slightly cautious about that is that I, I I think one of the things that has happened in the economy is that people do a lot is that the shopping uh, season has shifted, and therefore I think a lot of the hiring shifted. So one thing I think that happened is we we saw really strong employment numbers in September because people are doing the hiring that they normally do in November for shopping in September now because people do the shopping earlier as well. So that will lead to weakness in the fourth quarter because a lot of that sh- that used to be the holiday shopping season now takes place in the third quarter. Uh, but I, I don't think that necessarily means the economy is especially weak. And I think one of the things we're going to see next month is actually a surge in manufacturing jobs mm-hmm. because a lot of the striking workers who don't count as unemployed for the jobless benefits stuff, but are counted as unemployed in these reports that we just got out on Friday. They are unemployed because they were not paid to work. Uh, They will uh, come back onto the employment rolls. So we're going to see a big, so while while that took away 35,000 jobs manufacturing this month, uh, the next month is going to add back probably even more than that. I'm looking at the, um, the uh, hotline of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, last nine months, net employment change, the number one employer was government, 531,000. Number two is health care, uh, which is a lot of government, but that's 464. Leisure and hospitality, 445, and that's where a lot of action is taking place. That may be the strongest part of the economy right now. And then social assistance, 212, that's all government, blah, blah, blah. Um, Manufacturing only plus 37. So government is leading the way, John, and I would regard that as a sign of economic weakness, not strength. I do. No, that's absolutely true. And if you look the last, I think it's the last three months in a row, where the government number has been steadily growing by 50,000, that should not be happening when you have a problem where the economy is not producing enough goods and services to satisfy consumer demand, so you have too much inflation. Well, government isn't doing that either. But what you're doing is when you're you're hiring that many more people into government, you're pumping up demand without increasing the supply. So they're actually making inflation worse by engaging in this uh, government hiring spree that really shouldn't be happening right now at all. Um, the Cleveland Fed inflation now cast, I think, has a very low CPI uh, for That's right. uh, what are we looking at? October. October. Like point one, I think, was the top line. I don't know what the co- the core was higher. I think what we're going to see in inflation uh, is a weaker October. In part, again, I think actually one of the things that's going to be surprising, and because we're still not used to it, the analysts aren't used to it, actually the seasonal adjustments aren't used to it. Hmm. But if you see what's happening in the stores, I was in, in in Costco recently, and they already had Christmas, you know, trees up. You know, it's not even Thanksgiving. They're selling all the Christmas stuff. But a lot of big retailers are actually already starting to have what they call like early Black Friday sales. Hmm. So the seasonal adjustment doesn't take account for that. It does that later on in December. It assumes that prices are going to come down, and so therefore doesn't you know read that into the inflation numbers. 
what this is gonna what's gonna happen is you're gonna get a lot of sales, early holiday sales, that will depress the headline numbers on uh on inflation, but not really reveal where inflationary pressures are going. So plus gasoline prices. Gasoline's come down. Gasoline has come down a lot, which is a little surprising given, you know, the state of the Middle East right now. Mm. Uh, but it has come down. Frankly, that's also probably not a good sign. That's a sign of an expectation of declining demand, not just in the U.S., but around the world. I mean, Europe's economy is in a lot of trouble. China is still very troubled. And I think one of the things that people are realizing is, you know, low, slow growth or even recession in Europe is going to depress uh, demand for oil. And that's actually holding down gasoline prices. John, uh, John Carney, you're a pretty good Fed watcher. Uh, did we learn anything from uh, Jay Powell and the Fed this week? Yeah, I think what we learned is that the hurdle for raising rates is actually much higher than it was a month ago. Hmm. Uh, but back when, some, when they met in September, they, you know, they said, well, we, you know, we're, we're holding off, but we're you know, probably biased towards raising. I think it would take some really extraordinarily strong employment and inflation numbers to convince them to raise again in December. I don't see that happening uh, for the various reasons we just discussed. So I think right now, even though they haven't admitted that they've changed their bias from tightening to just holding, they are definitely on a holding bias. It would take a, a, a big change in the direction of things for them to hike again. So that might <clears throat> that would rule out December, too. It, rule, it certainly rules out December. They're not going to hike in January. Um, so at the earliest, if inflation gets worse, um, we'd be looking at a March hike, which I don't think is actually probable. Right now, the market thinks they cut in May. All right. I think there's a good possibility that they hike in May unless mm. the economy falls off a cliff. Then, sure, any bet, you know, bets are off if that happens. Well, of course, Wall Street is putting the futures market with a decline in the Fed funds rate. Interest rates did fall quite a bit this past week. They always do that, though. They, I mean, now your question is, will the Fed cut their target rate? That's right. So the, the, right now, Wall Street is looking at, is timing the cut. They had moved it all the way out to September. They said, we're, you know, no, there will be a cut next year, but it won't happen until September. It came back to June. It came back to July. It's now June or May because they saw these softer jobs numbers and said, all right, look, if the jobs numbers keep softening, that could provoke a recession, or at the very least, it could allow the Fed to feel comfortable cutting rates. And there will be a lot of pressure next year for them to cut rates because the, obviously the Biden administration would like to see uh, rates falling and the economic activity picking up. The real estate industry is screaming for rate cuts because they hate what it's done to home sales. So they really want to do it. Uh, so there's and people and there's you know plenty of uh, liberals in the economy who have been complaining about how high rates are. You know, Elizabeth Warren already, uh-huh. so they want it, rate cuts as well. You know, I could see a rate cut like three days before the election. I the <laughs> the, the independent Fed starts slashing rates three days before the election. Get out the vote. Get out the vote. I mean, anything can happen on that. Um, so the inflation story is. You're still probably sticky inflation, three to four percent, though. That's right. And look, when I even though these jobs numbers were soft, 
when I look at, and there were certainly stuff, 150 is not, was not a great number. When I look at the three month trend, we're at about 204,000 over the last three months. Mm-hmm. That we were also at, we were at 207 over the prior three months. That reminds me of what I've been saying about inflation, which is that it's not coming down fast enough, at least if you look at the multi month trends. Yeah. It kind of looks like it's stuck where it is. Unless we get a couple more months of softer numbers in the jobs number, then sure, then I'll then I'll buy that it's really softening. But right now, right, my friend, we're on trend at two hundred. Breitbart's John Carney, the best of the best. Thank you, John. Folks, we're going to take a break. Other side of the break, we're going to talk to Greg Jarrett. He's got a new book out. And what about these new Biden scandals? What about these new Biden checks? I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Greg Jarrett, Fox News legal analyst and New York Times bestselling author. My pal on all scans. Got a new book out, The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. I guess it's going to be out next week. Uh, But I'm sure one click on Amazon, you can get it and other places. So, Greg Jarrett, welcome. Before we get to the Constitution, which is a wonderful document, and I wanted to talk about uh, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural, I have a story here. Um, our friend Andy McCarthy, Andrew McCarthy of National Review, Biden can't escape his China scandal paper trail. Additional evidence unearthed by the Oversight Committee. I had Jamie... Comer on the show this past week. And uh, Joe Biden's collusion with China, and we see checks coming out, $200,000, $40,000, 40000 10% of the $400,000, that's yeah. the 10% for the big guy. Um, Biden supporters, Greg, they're talking, well, gee whiz, it was just a loan. How do we know it was a loan? Well, it says so on the check, but there are no documents behind this loan. And it started out with a Chinese energy company, which was uh, close to uh, President Xi. So what do you make about all this? (laughs) Well, your point is an excellent one, Larry. You know, where's the evidence of an original loan or a loan document or the interest payments? Yeah. Well, you know, Joe has never revealed it. Uh, in as required by law in financial disclosure forms or, or identify it on tax forms. But let's say even if it is a real loan, that's really largely irrelevant. Laundered money came from Chinese interests who seem to be buying Joe's political influence, which is what the, the Biden family was clearly selling. That makes the president susceptible as Jamie Comer said, to blackmail uh, and thereby jeopardizes national security. And it certainly puts a lie to Joe Biden's repeated public claim that neither he nor his son ever received money from China. They most certainly did. Joe met personally with Hunter Biden's uh, Chinese partners repeatedly. He would get on the telephone with them and only thereafter uh, when he did that, did the money flow like a river to the Biden? So, you know, a lot of uh, things to investigate here. But, you know, it, it, Joe Biden has not been telling the truth. You know, um, McCarthy, Andy McCarthy, is a very smart guy. Um, 
he talks about this, Joe Biden's collusion with China. Right. You know, and I think, Greg, I looking at bigger pictures here, um, Iran, which is, of course, the paymaster of Hamas for this awful war, uh, Iran is selling an enormous amount of oil to China, breaking the Trump sanctions. And so Iran is compiled anywhere from 50 to 60 billion or maybe as much as 80 billion dollars of reserves to finance the war, to finance Hamas, to finance the murders. Um, They're selling it to China and Joe Biden's colluding with China. And you kind of have to put one and one together. At some point, you have to ask yourself, uh, what kind of influence is China having because of all this money uh, on Joe Biden? Yeah. And and it's not just China. Uh, It's Ukraine. It's Russia. Uh, it's Kazakhstan. Uh, the, the list goes on and on. So far, the Oversight Committee has, by examining bank records and you know more than 150 suspicious activity reports, which must be an all-time record, uh, they've discovered more than 24 million dollars flowing into the Biden bank accounts. And it was all carefully hidden through a complex web of shell companies, which, as you know, constitutes uh, money laundering. And and yet, we, we've really seen absolutely no criminal charges uh, that have been brought other than a gun charge against mm-hmm. Hunter Biden. And, of course, this week he, you know, penned for USA Today uh, this woe-is-me editorial saying that everybody is is weaponizing his addiction against yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, no, in fact, he's exploiting his addiction uh, for gain in trying to manufacture public sympathy. He seems to think it carries a special dispensation and exemption that somehow excuses criminal behavior. It doesn't. Greg, talk about the Constitution and... <clears throat> So, if you're a novice, what's the most important thing to read? Well, I, I do think that it's the whole of, of the book here, the writings and speeches uh, by Patrick Henry, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Booker T. Washington, Susan B. Anthony, all of these great Americans. Uh, really contributed uh, to our exceptional success with their galvanizing idea. You know, America was built on noble ideas and inspiring words. And people who get this book, the Constitution and other patriotic documents, will really have a better understanding of what made America so great. It's a, it's a deluxe collection a keepsake volume that I think comes in handy every time we want to look something up about how our great nation came to be. And speeches you like, uh, Abe Lincoln, second and all. I love that speech, by the way. That I is love a, that speech. A, an incredible speech. Of course, when you go to the Lincoln Memorial, you can you can read it on the wall. And, you know, it's one of the most inspiring speeches uh, in American history, and you know, I, it, it's in my book, of course. Uh, I've got about six different 
addresses delivered by the man who was probably our greatest uh, American president. But you've also got uh, some interesting things. Albert Einstein's secret letter to Franklin Roosevelt warning him uh, that the Germans were developing an atomic Mm. weapon. Mm. Uh, You know, a moving address by Douglas MacArthur. Uh, Ronald Reagan's tear down this wall. So uh, there's a lot to pack into this, but, you know, I'm immensely proud of it. With What was it? With charity toward all and malice toward none? Yes, that's this correct. Was the, this was the beginning of Reconstruction. Tragically, he was assassinated a week later or whenever it was. Uh, but he, that was the lead into Reconstruction, wasn't it? It really was, and, of course, there were so many obstacles. I I do give credit to Ulysses Grant uh, for using uh, troops to try to enforce Reconstruction and achieve the aspiration of equality for all that Lincoln was so dedicated to. I don't mean to interrupt, Greg, you especially, but U.S. Grant is one of our most underrated presidents. I mean, he was a great historical figure. People loved him. He did his best. I got to jump out, my friend. Greg Jarrett, everybody, Fox News legal analyst. And the name of the book is The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. It's released next week. Please go out and buy it. I'm Cudlow. We're going to do some stock market work on the other side of the break. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hey, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Let's reset. You can get us, uh, talk to us during the week. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I know I missed it yesterday. I was underwater, bad cold, fighting back here today. But uh, 4 to 5 p.m. And, um... If you can't be there at 4, you can text your favorite 9-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. The show does replay at 7 p.m. also. And here you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, including the Milky Way. So we're going to have some fun. Stock market work, huge rally in stocks. The basic theme here, I'm going to front-run my two distinguished guests just a little bit. The basic theme is interest rates down and stocks up. That's all I'll say. I don't like the front-run because that's not good radio hosting, but I kind of snuck that in. So we've got Ken Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slatestone Wealth. And we have Pete Nigerian co-founder of Market Rebellion and Option Monster, two of the best of the best. Uh, start with Kenny Polcari. Uh, did I get that right? Rates down. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, the two-year down 16 bips. The 10-year down 26 bips. 10 years a little above four and a half. It was close to five. Three-month Treasury bill along with the Fed funds rate is still high, 539. So you got an inverted curve, which spells recession next year. 
But nonetheless, the Dow is up uh, 1,644 points. The Nasdaq right. plus 835, and the S&P 500 plus 241. So the Cudlow Trust did very well this week. Kenny Polcari, what do you make of it? <laughs> I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you're absolutely right. They, you know, they saw this move down in interest rates and this explosion higher in uh, in stocks. Now they had gotten to a they had gotten to a a well oversold position the prior week when uh, when uh, we saw the when we saw the S and P break certain technical points trade all the way down to forty one hundred. But I think the news this week is giving people and algos the idea that the Fed is done. But look, you and I both know Janet Yellen came to the market the other day and said she's going to bring $1.6 trillion worth of uh, treasuries to the market over the next five months. Who's going to buy all those? That's going to be the real question. So what are rates going to do when she starts to flood the market with those treasuries? And we have China, Japan, and the Treasury who have been buyers are now net sellers so what's going to happen and that's where i think yeah china japan and the china japan and the fed i started that this was my mantra last week it's very funny uh it started with larry Lindsay's newsletter which i read every day the guy's brilliant and um by the way the treasury borrowing committee or whatever they're called is predicting uh 0.7% 0.7% GDP in the fourth quarter and 1% right. next year for what that's worth. So I start and I put that in my riff and then the speaker of the house comes on, <laughs> uh, Mike Johnson, uh, Thursday and he, he plays it back to me. Well, you know, Larry, we've got one and a half trillion dollars of borrowing in the next six months. By the way, it is 11% of GDP. It's very funny. Uh, a lot of market analysts picked up on that. But on the other hand, uh, Pete Nigerian, you were very kind to help us on the show with the oversold condition uh, point. But really, um, is there a turning point here, I guess, is what people would like to know. Well, I, I think the one thing that we absolutely have known and continue to know, Larry, is, and I think Kenny was just spot on, when you, when you look at what's going on within the markets right now and the algorithmic uh, trading that's going on right. in the markets, it's all tied to the same thing. They're looking at the 10-year. Wherever the 10-year is going, as we go, we are going to do the exact opposite in terms of the markets. And obviously, this move from 5% was a very rapid move from 5% to 4.5%. I mean, it was incredible. And, and I think Kenny mentioned 1,600 points later. When, when I'm looking at it, Larry, one of the reasons why I say it's algorithmic is because of the fact that it's just so dead set in the exact same spot. And on top of that, we're seeing volumes like we haven't seen in a very, very long period of time. Matter of fact, maybe, maybe never for that uh, when you really look at it, because when I look at the options world, we've had about five or six days in the last maybe 10 or 11 where we've gone 50 million contracts or more. Friday, we traded 58.5 million contracts. So I think there are algorithmic trades going on and getting a little bit of an enhanced move because of the fact that we're talking about the options world as well as the stock world. So when I look at a Monday up 500 points and a Thursday up 560 and then finish the week up 220, there's a lot of reasons for it. But I think the easiest one to point at right now, and it's absolutely right, is right there at the 10-year. And by the way, earnings have not been as bad as probably most people would have expected as we've Mm. gone through Amazon and Microsoft and Starbucks and we continue to go on in this coming week. We've got Disney and others, but you know, it, there there have been a few that have not been great. But even those stocks now are starting to catch a little something, which shows me why this algorithm is right there. Names like Google that got hit because of the the issues that they had in cloud, 
and yet that stock's right. zooming to the upside as well. Why is that? Well, there's no difference right now, at least, about that cloud number, but those right. algorithms are buying everything up right as fast as they can. The, the same way they sold them all two weeks ago. They couldn't sell them fast enough. Hmm. <laughs> That's a great point. You're exactly right. Why is, uh, uh, Kenny, why is Amazon revenues keep falling? No, I'm sorry. Apple revenues keep uh, falling. Their well, business, you know, their business in China Apple, is sinking. Right. But, well, but Apple is one of those stocks, you know, that, that, that beat on the top and bottom line, but yet they gave cautious guidance going forward, and even though their revenues are down. So, yeah, they're blaming it on China. I'm not really sure I'm buying that whole thing. Uh, I think there's lots of opportunity across that other part of the world, right? India, there's going to be huge opportunity. They even said it themselves last quarter that, they're, you know, Tim Cook said that he's looking for big growth coming out of India. But China certainly might be slowing a little bit. Um, I'm not necessarily sure I, I, I completely believe uh, that China is slowing as much as they say it is. But look, it is what it is. Their products are, 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 well, are very mature. That's not a high growth sexy company. It's a very mature company. And so I would expect that we're going to see kind of revenues just bounce up. They still made $90 billion in three months. <laughs> Multiply that times four, and it's $360 billion a year. I mean, I'm scratching my head when people sell Apple off. I'd give it all to Israel. Give it all to 360. I'd give it to Israel. Let him whoop Mm -hmm. Hamas. No matter what Joe Biden wants to do. I'm sorry. I digress. I just thought of that. I don't know why. Is there a turning point in the market, though? Are we now entering a a bull phase? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, Well, I would say yes. I'll jump in real quick. I'd say yes because of the fact that where we look at volatility, we we talk about all these other things, you know, the 10-year going from 5% to 4.5% at an incredible pace. How about volatility going from 23 to 15 in an incredible pace as well? And when you get that volatility, that gives more opportunity because of the fact, especially in in the derivatives world that I that I pray in, <laughs> we, we see that all the time. That gives us an opportunity to have more leverage going in because prices have come down. And with that implied right. volatility, whether it's the S&P or an individual names, it's an incredible enhancer for the markets as well. So I think there's, there's a lot of different factors. I'd say one last thing about Apple, guys. The gross margin at 45%, uh, that's an incredible number for Apple. And that, that was the main number I was looking at when they came out of their earnings. I wanted to see how are they doing? How are they really healthy? Are they healthy? Are they not? They're healthy. I'm not worried yeah, about them at all. They're pretty damn healthy. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to your point, is this the beginning of a bull market? Look, I'd like to think we're going to get this Santa Claus rally into the end of the year. But, and I'm very optimistic. I'm long stock. I haven't sold anything. I'd buy more. That's fine. But mm-hmm. uh, what I am concerned about is, is when we talk about all this treasury coming to the market, who's going to buy it and what price is it going to clear at? Is it going to clear at lower prices, sending yields up once again, which will then start to hammer away at, at, at stocks' ability to move higher until it all adjusts, right? Look, the market mm-hmm. can the market can deal with 5% rates. It did for most of our lives, right? So, so that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's the speed at which it whips around, going from you know five percent to four and a half back to five percent. The speed at which that happens is what will cause kind of the some two, of the uncertainty in the days ahead. Two weeks ago, everybody was talking about market correction. A lot of these mm-hmm. indexes were down ten percent. That was two weeks ago. I mean, I do this stuff. I don't follow it the way you guys do. I look at it. 
Come Saturday, I know we're going to have a stock market sack. Two weeks ago, there were 10% plus corrections across the board. Now, now we're in a new bull market. I, I mean, I'm happy. That, as I say, the Cudlow Trust is in the S&P index fund, so we did well. But I don't know whether to believe this or not. I would say that some of the belief that I've got in it right now, Larry, is when we've gotten into earnings season, of course, we went through the financials rapidly at the start. But when we got into Microsoft, and that was strong, we got into Google, and actually the revenue itself was very strong. They were all Everybody was focused on the cloud. Then you had Meta. Then you had Amazon. When you go through a lot of these numbers, including AMD recently and now Apple, these numbers are actually pretty impressive. Uh, you know, the, the earnings of Apple were up 13% year over year. There's, there's a lot of different things. You, could, you can cherry pick all you want for the negative or the positive, but – when I see a reaction like Apple where it gets sold off to 171 but actually finishes the date almost back to flat, that mm, tells me right. that people were starting to look at that and understand the numbers weren't as bad as first thought. Mm. Agreed. All right. Agreed. Take a break. Take a break. Ken Paul Carey, Managing Partner, Case Capital Advisors, and uh, Chief Market Strategist, Slate Stone Wealth, Pete Najarian, Co-Founder of Market Rebellion and Option Monster. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with more stocks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking stocks <clears throat> with Ken Carey, Case Capital Advisor, Slate Stone Wealth, Pete Najarian, Market Rebellion, and Option Monster. Uh, kids, one area that's very interesting to me as an indicator of the economy is bank stocks, which have done very badly this year, uh, even with the rally down 21%. Uh, Bank of America down 14. They're the worst. Let's see. Citigroup down 7. Goldman down 5. Wells Fargo flat. J.P. Morgan, the best of the lot, up nearly 7%, even though Jamie Dimon's selling stock. Now, last week had a huge rally in the KBW index, 11%, even though it's down year-to-date, as I said, 21%. Fellas, um, you know, you don't hear much talk about bank collapse, regional banks, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, all that stuff. Is that gone? Is it all gone now? Kenny Pocari, weigh in. Well, please. I, I think no, for the big banks, I don't think it was ever a problem. J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, too, that I own that I like. Um, but I think for the big banks, that, that's not really an issue. For the, for the smaller banks, I think there's got to be a little bit of concern out there, just depending on what we see happen with rates. But for the most part, I think that it is settled down. Anyone that was in trouble kind of has figured out a way to take care of it. I think you see some of those banks that have gotten really beaten up uh, start to make their way back. Uh, and so I think I'm, I'm being optimistic and thinking, yes, I think it's behind us unless we have, you know, this massive spike suddenly in rates that will cause pressure on, on some of the regional smaller banks. Well, Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary, who's a very good friend, Shark Tank investor. He's a good guy. And he's a smart guy. But, um, you know, Pete, he's been um, basically preaching regional banks, small banks going to get killed, uh, commercial real estate loan portfolios uh, way underwater because of rising interest rates and so forth mm-hmm. and so on. So you think that's overstated now or, or maybe it's not? I mean, the thing is, what if the economy goes into recession next year? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I wouldn't be as concerned about that, Larry. I, I personally still go back a year ago when I said that I thought we were in a recession then, uh, mm-hmm. a year ago last summer. So 
Um, and, and people, and most of the people didn't even think it was a recession. So uh, that shows you how recessions can be interpreted at times by the markets themselves. If we are in position to be a recession, not a depression, we're okay. Um, if it's depression, that certainly is, is not the same situation. But I would also say this about the regional banks. I still think there's some worry out there for some of those regional banks. And I'm not going to say specific names, but I think that there are some names still, that still exist out there where it's not like it was this past March, but there's still people that are looking at that and a little bit concerned. And because of that, I think that's weighing on all of the different financials, all of the different banks. That's why we're not seeing the performance that we probably would have expected, I think, once we've gotten out of that situation. We certainly have bounced, but we are not all the way back by any stretch of the imagination. And I think it's because there's, there's still worry, there's still some concern, whether that's right or wrong, it is what it is, and we just have to trade around that. So I'm I'm very light in any bank exposure right now, whether it's a J.P. Morgan or a Bank of America. And I think J.P. Morgan's doing well for you, Kenny, so I'm not worried about that one at all. But yeah. when I'm, what, yeah. one, the ones I'm worried about, though, are, are more of the regional. And I still think that there are some issues there that, that could become something. And I think that's why we're seeing it just nobody's excited to go in there and dive in there and just say, this is done, I need to be there. I'm just not seeing that, and that's why we are seeing them kind of just m- – m- just basically just barely moving along, not having a very explosive move to the upside. Uh, last one, gold and oil, Ken Pulcari. Now let's see, gold, like- gold's kind of done nothing, didn't do anything last week. Gold's up 9% this year. Uh, oil, I'm going to use Brent crude, is actually down 1% this year. So gold and oil, what do you make of it? Right, so I like, I like both. Uh, I'm long both. I like gold. I think it continues to go higher. Like you said, it is up 9%. I think the continued unrest uh, around the world, which you know, which has the potential to just explode because I think parts of it are a tinderbox. And then I think you'll see a, a big run to, run to the ultimate safety trade in gold. And energy, I, th- I'm still, I still think that energy demand is growing. We saw the Saudis and, and OPEC come out with you know, increased demands in 24, increased demands in 25. We saw J.P. Morgan come out with a report saying that they see increased demand and that oil's going to 100 $125 a, a barrel. Um, and so I like energy, and I don't think that story's going away, so I remain long in. And, Larry, um, I'd point out one last thing, Larry. Um, uranium is something that I think people should keep an eye on. Oh. We all talk about oil. We all talk about nat gas. But uranium has been absolutely an explosive move this year to the upside. I don't think it's over. I think there's still something left. And I'm talking about nuclear power here. So there's a lot of different areas that, that I think – that are interesting in the energy space, but specifically uranium is the one that stands out. You know, you know, Pete, they're coming out with all these modules and it's going to be big business. Now, it's it's very funny. I got three inquiries about uranium this week. People, uh, clients asking me, what about uranium? And it's funny because I haven't heard that in a while. And suddenly you just say it again now. So uh, (laughs) it's picking up its head for sure. Well, I can these these modules could be put up. They're cheaper, right? They're smaller. You can use them in, you know, local municipalities. Uh, I mean, some of it's (laughs) war, Iran, but let's put that aside for a minute. Uh, Domestic energy, uh, nuclear power could be a big part of the story, Pete. Absolutely, and I think names like Kamiko and others are very, very interesting. And it's not just one name. There's many names, but I think uranium is something that everybody should at least have on their computer when they're looking around the markets yeah. at what they want to stare at. I'd, I'd put that on there for sure. Plus, the Bidens the Bidens don't want to excavate for it. They don't want to dig for it. They don't want to drill for it. I love that. Right. And it's, it, it, it's, the cleanest, it's the cleanest burning fuel, 
and they hate yep. it, yep. right? The left-wing exactly. greenies hate hate it. They just hate it because, wait a second, hold on, because they hate it, right? That's the reason. Because <laughs> there's mean, no other reason. There's no other reason. They just hate it. There's no other reason. Right. It's great. It's part of their overall strategy, left-wingers. God help us. <laughs> Fellas, you're absolutely terrific. <laughs> I think we solved all our problems. Kenny Pelcari, knowing for a million years, Pete Najarian, coming over from CNBC, is doing such a great job on Fox. You're both wonderful. I'm Kudlow. We'll take a break. Money and Politics next up with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. To the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics. Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and WABC radio host of More Money coming up on many of these same stations. Uh, greetings, kids. I want to just talk for a minute about House Speaker Mike Johnson. Uh, interviewed him on the TV show this week. Uh, Steve Moore, I'll go to you. Um, he's saying give Israel the money. He got his $14 billion through. Uh, the rest of it, no. Now, here's the thing. Senator Ron Johnson was on this radio show uh, at the top of the show, and he said uh, he's got a group of Republicans that will prevent cloture unless Schumer deals with the... Uh, border security, uh, changes of policy, and also a discussion of the Ukraine. In other words, the Johnson plan, which Schumer says he won't take up, Ron, Ron John, the Mike Johnson plan, the Speaker Johnson plan, but Senator Ron Johnson says he's got enough Republicans to prevent closure unless they take up the border security along with Ukraine. What do you think of that? Are you hearing anything about that? Because that is a key battle coming up this week. Let me just say, um, you know, uh, kudos to Mike Johnson. I, I, I've actually only met him once or twice. I wouldn't say I know him very well. But I'm just completely impressed with uh, what he's he's only been speaker for, what, two weeks? He's already got the Democrats uh, tied in the knots like a pretzel. And I thought his strategy on uh, the Israel aid bill was magnificent. And he's basically saying to Biden, you mean you're going to kill Israel aid because you want 87,000 new IRA agents? That's your higher priority? I think um, it's brilliant. And by the way, that was one of the first times, Larry, in a couple of years where we've actually had a bipartisan vote. You know, I think there were 12, 15 Democrats. Hmm. who crossed over and voted for that bill. In other words, I think that the strategy that this speaker needs to use, and he used it this time, 
is to divide and conquer the Democratic Party. There are still 15 to 20 reasonable Democrats in the House, and if he can split them off from the radicals, I think he can make real progress. Now, I'm not I'll, I'll, I'm not familiar with the Ron Johnson bill that you were talking about, but it, it sounds pretty reasonable as well. Let's well, it's home border secure as well. It's not uh, it's not a specific bill. It it, it plays. It, it's really uh, Speaker Johnson, whom, as I said, I interviewed him. He laid it out. Uh, finish the wall and yep. release restart remain in mexico that's what he wants he laid it out on the air now schumer hates it right biden hates it uh liz liz i think the republicans have a chance to really make a custer's last stand here and get some fabulous changes in border policy and foreign policy because the ukraine story uh you know, Johnson, Speaker Johnson is not saying no money for Ukraine, but he's also saying, besides attaching to the border, he's saying, we might give you some money, but you're going to have to set parameters. You're going to have to show us an exit strategy. You're going to have to show us a diplomatic ceasefire mission because it's a stalemate. He called it a stalemate on the show. Well, and, and I think that's how the American people see it right now. Joe Biden never comes out or any Pentagon official, and says, here's how we're going to win this war. They never right. talk about an end game. But I want to go back to the Speaker Johnson, because I agree totally with Steve that he has really done a great job here. And I know this for two reasons, one of, one of which is Hakeem Jeffries uh, is out there talking about let's end uh, partisanship <laughs> and all work for the greater good. That's a great line. Uh, and uh, number two, Paul Krugman's uh, column in the New York Times yesterday was headlined, Holding National Security Hostage to Help Tax Cheats, which, which is so feeble uh, and so preposterous. Uh, but, you know, what, what Republicans are doing, one, showing a little metal, and boy, do I yes. think voters want that. Yes. And number two, Going with popular things. I mean, here's the craziness, Larry. Uh, you know, nobody in the country likes what's going on at the border. I mean, I would literally guarantee you 95% of Americans think it's horrific. And all we need is one terrorist attack spawned by someone who came in the country illegally during this open border t- uh, period under Biden. And you are going to have... I, I mean, people are going to be furious. They're already furious. So good for Ron Johnson to link yeah. any kind of Ukraine uh, t- uh, aid to that. Uh, and good for Speaker. I mean, all of all of Republicans need to understand they have the high ground here. They have the popular yeah. message for yes. once. And let's stand up for these things. And, you know, the other little piece, but it's not so little. Uh, Johnson really is keen, Steve, on offsetting yeah. Any spending, any spending yeah, increase yeah, yeah. has to be covered by a spending cut, yeah. right? I mean, that's a uh, Newt Gingrich really harped on that. Uh, Mike Johnson is harping on that. I mean, that's something Republicans have forgot about, but it's very important. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I, I've been saying that you've got to tie, you know, uh, any Israel aid to dollar for dollar cuts. But also, I'd like to see. Another provision, which being, okay, you know, we're going to also to fight terrorism, we're going to start producing more oil and gas here at home. Yeah. But, you know, you think about it, this is what, the aid package is what, somewhere between 14 and $20 billion for Israel. 
You're telling me out of a six trillion dollar budget, they can't find yeah. fifteen billion dollars. I mean, it shows the absurdity of what Liz was just talking about. I, Liz, I just think there's a revolt in America against the craziness uh. of Washington. That I mean, it's laughable to say no. We can't cut 05 percent out of the most obese budget that we've ever seen in the history of the United States. I mean, my God, just take two percent out of the green energy slush fund and you paid for it. They don't want Larry. They don't want to cut anything. If you look at the two and a half years that Biden has been in, in pre, uh, president, you know how many budget cuts he's proposed? <laughs> Zero. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, I know. He, he cut the deficit by a trillion dollars, Steve. By, Where have you been? Right, by $1.7 trillion. <laughs> it's a bottomless, yeah. Pino- bottomless Pinocchio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline is saying in the last nine months, speaking of government spending, the biggest job creator in America is, wait for it, hang on a second, hold on, government, 531,000 jobs. (laughs) Number one, healthcare two, leisure three, and social assistance four. I put social assistance inside government. government. Yeah, you know what? Uh, that's why, actually, if you look the other, do you know what the other fastest growing component of the economy is in the last uh, year? Healthcare. No. Oh yeah, healthcare, yeah. right? Third, so it's all funded third, by government. Exactly, yes. and then you know what the third biggest component is? Education. So all of yeah. these things are tied to government. Then you look at employment in you know the the sectors of the economy that make things: mining, manufacturing, construction. Uh, you know, warehousing. Those are pretty much flat. Yeah. So my point is that we're growing the economy, yeah, in all the wrong places. That's right. And and I think, you know, I think people know that. I, I put out a piece yesterday at the Hill about, you know, why people aren't buying Bidenomics. One, every price you look at, everything that you – if you want to go lease a new car, you want to buy a house, whatever, everything is up so much more than yeah. 4%. Nobody yeah. believes it. McDonald's price is up 10%. PepsiCo up 10%. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's ridiculous. When Target's CEO comes out, as he did on Friday, I think, or Thursday, and says people are buying less units in grocery, you know, mm-hmm. quarter, month to month, quarter to quarter, doesn't anyone kind of perk up their ears and say people are really struggling? I mean, and, and for, I mean, honestly, the stupidity of Joe Biden's putting his name on economic policies where people are really hurting, right. you, you just got to kind of shake your head and say, I, I mean, what are they thinking? $20 hamburger, Liz. $20 hamburger. Yeah, I know. About, Honestly, about- Larry, if you go through, and as New Yorkers, I mean, we're always like, wait, what is a taxi is now nine fifty when you get in a cab? But also add on top of everything this urge to tip. You're, you're being asked to tip Tw- people who hand you a product over the counter. $20 yeah. McDee's. So I... Hannity was complaining. Hannity's complaining about that. I said, "All right, don't eat it. It's bad for your arteries." Yeah. So how about how about about eight eight dollars now for a box of Cocoa Krispies? Yeah, but I mean that's that's the reality that people are seeing when they go to the grocery store. Look, Halloween candy was up thirteen percent. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you another example because I don't think this is actually reflected in the uh, in the CPI or accurately. I don't either. So, so here's the thing. If you look at the higher mortgage rates, I, I talked about this on Fox Business yesterday, yep. that if you look at the difference between an 8% rate 
for mortgages now, and it was 3% under Trump. If you just buy an average, uh, you know, median value home, your mortgage payments, which would have been $1,500 under Trump before all this inflation and interest rate increases, now you're paying like $2,800 a month, yeah. almost yeah. double. And yeah, that's pricing people in their 30s and 40s who want to buy their first home out of the market. And that's the kind of inflation that is, is really killing families. It's making it harder and harder for people to, to you know, achieve the American dream of owning, right. owning their own home. All right. Quick break here. Liz, uh, Liz Peak, Fox News, syndicated columnist, Steve Moore, FreedomWorks, Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his great radio show, More Money, WABC Radio host, right after this show on many of these same stations. Other side of the break, get ready, kids. The uh, Biden administration wants to regulate AI, artificial intelligence. Kamala Harris says it's very simple. It's just two letters, artificial intelligence. We'll be right back with AI. I'm Kudlow. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash prosperity hotline it's the best daily product on that subject and steve is wabc radio host of more money coming up right after this show on many of these same stations uh kids actually before we get to ai there's one more thing i always make notes for your segment um from the hotline more evidence that the green energy transition is a myth so we got whatever we got 10 or 20 years to go completely green the trouble is fossil fuels comprise 79% of energy source share in 2022. That's last year. 79%. Nuclear, 8. And um, at most, wind and solar, maybe 10. So, Steve, how do we we get to uh, uh, whatever it is, net green or net carbon or or net some goddamn thing? How do we get to that when you're running 79% right now using fossil fuels? So this is one of the biggest propaganda campaigns made ever. Uh, It's this idea that you've heard it probably a thousand times, Larry, uh, the great green energy transition, right? It's happening, and and the left talks about it every day. The the big transition that's happening all over the world towards green energy. It's a a fabrication of the truth. Last year, the uh, planet, all countries combined, used more fossil fuels than any other time in the history of the world. We're not. There is a transition going on in energy. It's away from green energy. Not toward it. I mean, these solar firms are going bankrupt. The wind farm. Do you see the? I think that yeah. you were referring to this offshore wind farm. I think it was in New Jersey that they're discontinuing, and yet the media isn't paying any attention. They keep acting like, oh gosh, in ten years we're not going to use any fossil fuels. God forbid. Liz, how those EVs going? Well, obviously they're not selling, and now we've just had a union deal. I was just tweeting about the fact that Jared Bernstein was on Bloomberg saying this was a win-win for the industry <laughs> and for the unions. Okay, it's going to raise it's going to raise the cost of an average car, according to Ford, eight hundred and fifty to nine hundred dollars. So I guess it's not a win for consumers. <laughs> it's going to cost GM four and a half billion dollars. So I guess yeah. maybe it's not a win for them either. This is a win for big labor, a union that, you know, historically has been basically incredibly corrupt. Uh, and now 
Joe Biden is all in on the EV program, which is going, yeah. which has basically led to this militancy on yeah. the part of the UAW because they know yeah. their futures are in doubt. I, I, but can, I, really, can I just correct Liz on one thing? I yeah. agree with everything you said except one thing. I think that these unions are making a huge, huge mistake. They should be fighting against these EVs. I mean, the batteries are made in China. All the stuff is being imported in the United States. People aren't buying the EVs. I think they're making a deal with the devil, and it's going to, in the long run, really hurt the unions. Well, Steve, worse than that, I I don't know if you've been following this, but in Europe, EVs are now up to, I think, 14, 15 percent of auto sales. European automakers are hysterical because... The Chinese are flooding the European market with cheap EVs, which, by the way, are very good. They're basically uh, complete knockoffs of Tesla, but they only pay. They only cost about thirty thousand dollars. So, guess what? In a couple of years, those guys are going to be looking at the U.S. market, uh, and there's going to be nothing our car companies can do. So, they will basically be on. uh, They're going to be on Joe Biden or whoever is president at that point to say. Tariffs are what we need. We need bailouts from yeah, consumers. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's so awful what they're doing to the U.S. auto industry, and they won't be around probably to pick up the pieces, but taxpayers will be there to do just that. By the way, if you look at um, Holman Jenkins's column, in round numbers, if I recall, the UAW settlement uh, is about $80 an hour wages. Yeah. Non-union. Yeah. Non-union non-union 50 so i don't know i think it was kind of self-destruct larry there's a reason why over the last 30 years more and more of these auto plants have moved to states like tennessee and texas and south carolina because they don't want to be dominated uh by the unions but like what kind of a union tries to destroy the companies that it works for Mm. i mean it just doesn't make very much sense if you want, and look, I'm not against unions, and I do want unions to get the best deal they can, but boy, they should be making cars that Americans want. By the way, another statistic, uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation, Ford lost over $40,000 for every EV they made. That's a real good business proposition. So, so Liz, in the last minutes here, the AI story, I don't know that I understand AI, except there's like an eight-page presidential executive order that basically they're going to regulate all parts of uh, artificial intelligence. Do we have an opinion on this stuff? Um, When the government tries to regulate something that, A, they don't understand, and, B, (laughs) that's in formation, uh, and basically they will only do this. They will only box out American companies from being in the forefront of technology. Uh, If they could have done it in in developing the Internet, they would have, Larry. Thankfully, they didn't. But this is going to be another mess and honestly to put kamala harris in front of this mm. i mean no forgive me well she said it was plan. very simple it's just two letters artificial intelligence <laughs> right and then did, did you see what vivek ramaswamy said he said i don't even think she can spell uh, ai <laughs> <laughs> well they got a bunch of working groups they're going to police and this thing is just i got to get jimmy petakukas on jimmy p wrote a good uh article about this i mean it really i think you're right liz it will stunt. It yep. will stunt American growth and innovation in this important area. And everything. And by the way, there's all kinds of equity, you know, civil rights protections oh, in sure. here, sure. Uh, gender protections, the whole nine yards. Oh, all the God. DEI stuff is in here. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. I, yeah. You know what, kids? We need a new president. 
Oh, no Sorry. kidding. I really uh, have come to the view, after much yeah. thought, that we need a new president. <laughs> it's a revelation, Larry. Go with it. Can I go back to one thing on this AI thing? Because this is yeah. really important. I mean, if you go back to the early 90s, to the mid-90s, when, when right after Al Gore invented the Internet, um, you know, the, the, for the once, Washington made a really, really smart decision. And Chris Cox, remember Chris Cox, yep. he was one of the people who was behind us. And basically what we just, we, um, I'm simplifying, but we basically said, you know what? We're going to make the Internet tax-free, regulation-free, and mm-hmm. lawsuit-free. Yeah. And yeah. we created trillions and trillions yeah. of, I mean, Apple, Google, Amazon, you know, uh, every, all these incredible companies that were produced. Why don't we do that with AI? Just make it the Wild West. Let these companies do it. Do you have a story on that someplace that's a really good point chris cox this was while he was a house member right yeah you should larry you should get uh chris on your show one yeah he was the hero here yeah and he's a smart guy now we have now we have people who want to you know the lawsuits against the the uh, you know the these great companies they want to have you know more regulation and let's just let it be the wild west boy did it work for that i mean we we have the commanding heights it's the six, the Magnificent Seven. They're all companies yeah. that were created because of this deregulation environment. So my guess is what all these companies will do is go to Europe, go elsewhere to do the work that they should be yeah. doing in the yeah. U.S. I don't yeah. know how they'll manage it, but I'm pretty sure that's what will happen. <laughs> it's like, what are we afraid of? Yeah, all good these, You know, this was true with the Internet. This was true with the software revolution. Always we're afraid of it. This was true with the buggy whip makers when Henry Ford came along with the uh, gas-powered automobile. What we're going to create, there will be some losses and there will be magnificent, huge gains in yep. jobs yep. and output yep. and wealth, yep. right? Yep. I mean, That's the thing. This That's is the thing. I mean, the we desperately need productivity growth in this country, right. and this is where it's going to it. come from. So my view is just stand back, let it happen, and if there are excesses, if it gets into trouble, then step in. But this mm. preemptive strike against innovation, right. it's just horrifying to me. I like that uh, tax-free AI. I love that idea. <laughs> Holy cow. And regulation-free. All, right. All right, kids. You're both terrific on, uh, on that. Liz, uh, Liz Peak, Fox News, Steve Moore, Committee to Unleash. Stick around on many of these stations, WABC Radio, more money's coming up. I'm Cudlow. We'll be back next weekend. Thank you, folks.